would challenge you to do that. If you want to serve, just write serve on your connection card, and we'll get in touch with you and, and get you on the team. We'd love for more people to join in. All right. We're going to be continuing our series today. Um, we're doing a series on during the season of Lent called The Crucifixion of God. And uh, I'm going to quote and also paraphrase quite a bit uh, today from a book called Cross Vision. It's by a guy named Greg Boyd, um, pastor in Minnesota, theologian, general smart guy. Um, he wrote a great book. And uh, we are in the middle of a six-week season of lament. That's what Lent is. It's six weeks uh, that leads up to the crucifixion. And it reminds us of the violent and in, uh, unjust death of Jesus Christ. And it's a season that calls us to dwell in that and to, be okay, to, to wrestle with the tension of seeing our God hanging on a cross. And two weeks ago, when we began this teaching series... Um, we started talking about uh, what we're going to specifically do is use the cross as a lens in how to understand the Bible. So if you've ever wondered, how do I read the Bible? How do I make sense of all this? And, and you know, some, some of it seems to contradict itself. Like, how, how does the Bible actually fit together? The, the way that that happens is what we call a cruciform lens. And so the last two weeks, we've talked about specific, difficult passages in the Old Testament and we've used the cross to shine light into the past and figure out how do we reconcile this? How do we put this together? It's it's challenging because it's we've got uh, we've got a, it's not a the Bible's not a book it's a library and it's written by multiple different authors in multiple different uh, cultural contexts from multiple different backgrounds and and it spans thousands of years of writing so it's. It is truly a challenging book to read. It is not an easy read uh, to understand Scripture. So we need the cross to view that. And we also, um, if there's a sermon I want to preach in this, ser- this series that's going to challenge you, it's going to be this one. And so I, I invite you and openly ask you to question what I'm saying today. You, you should wrestle with it. All right, you do not, I don't want you ever to take what I say and think like that's exactly how it is. That's not how truth is communicated, and that's not how truth has arrived at. Truth is communal. So what I would ask you to do, what, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to really quickly, in like 20 minutes, peel off about 10 centuries of junk. Piece of cake, right? No problem. All right, so that's what I'm trying to do, and I'm going to have to do it quickly. It's going to be like pulling off a Band-Aid. And if you have really hairy arms, like my son Sutter, pulling off a Band-Aid really quickly with hairy arms, is, that's just a, it doesn't feel good. Um, so what we're going to do today, our scripture for today, well, actually... Um, I'm jumping way ahead. Um, I showed this picture last week, and I'm going to show it again. Um, we've got MLK and we've got the KKK. So just just to kind of get us going here, both of these groups, the, the, you know, MLK, the man, and the people who followed him, and the KKK, believe that the Bible is the word of God. They both believe that. They both use it to inform their platform. They both have thousands, if not, well, probably thousands of followers, lots of followers who follow in their footsteps of how to use scripture to interpret the world. But how do they arrive at such different conclusions? Because perspective matters. How you view the Bible matters. And we have to view it through through a cruciform lens. Here are uh, four quick conclusions that we reached uh, over the last two weeks. I'm going to catch you up if you've missed. Uh, The first one is, I mentioned, a cruciform lens. Scripture is not flat. 
it is a narrative arc, and the peak of that arc is Jesus on the cross. That is the, um, if you ever want to know, what does God look like? How would God react to this or to that? The best picture we have of that is Jesus on the cross. That is the best visual. It's the peak of the gospel. And since it's the peak, we allow the crucifix to inform both the past, the present, and the future. Um, the second thing we learned, it's okay to reinterpret the meaning of Old Testament passages through this new context of Christ. New Testament writers did this, so it's okay for us to do it. Um, I'm not saying we should stray from the original meaning of Old Testament every single time, but when the Old Testament seemingly conflicts with the New Testament, the, the New Testament wins. Like, we can reinterpret what's going on in the Old Testament Jesus did this, and the New Testament writers did this. The third thing is we need to remember that God is a missionary God. He is a God that left his throne in heaven to be hung on a cross. He comes down to us. He accommodates us. He stoops. He kneels. He draws near to us, so near to us that in the Old Testament, when they're writing and tracking and feeling the presence of God and still participating in sinful things, it's easy for them to confuse that God is affirming their sin. This still happens to all of us, all right? It's really easy for me to feel righteous anger and to respond in anger to something and think like, well, I'm right, so it's okay for me to yell at that person or to, or to lose my temper and even because I, it's easy for me to justify that. When God kneels down and stoops and draws near, it doesn't mean he's participating in the sin or affirming it. He's, he's there. So because of that nearness, it causes problems, uh, with the author's perspective and also with perspective. The fourth thing is we need to understand the projection that accompanied Old Testament authors because of the cultures they, the culture they lived in. Ancient Near East culture played a big part in the projection that Old Testament writers gave of God. We know this because the New Testament tells us that. In Hebrews 3, it talks about the Old Testament being clouded and distorted. They didn't have the full picture of God. It was not perfect doesn't mean it's not inspired or God breathed. It just means it's not the complete revelation. And now we have the crucifix to inform a full revelation and reconciliation of what's going on in the New Testament. So that's where we've been. And now we're going to take our next step into the journey. And we're going to try to attempt to reconcile the loving, sacrificial God we see in Christ on the cross and the images and the words that we see in the Old Testament that speak of God's wrath and God's punishment. And we can't do that without viewing it through a cruciform lens. We can't, I, we can't define wrath, judgment, and punishment accurate, accurately without the cross. And so today's scripture is going to be Genesis 6. It's on page 4 of your Bible. Some of you may have no, heard of this story before. It's, it's the Noah's Ark story. I don't have a felt board and little animals to like hold up. Um, Frankly, it's not a very pleasant story. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read kind of the beginning section leading up to the flood. Genesis 6, I'm going to read verses 5 through 22. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only, ev was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I, will, for I regret that I have made them. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth, will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're going to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You're to be, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. All right, so we, if you don't know the story, that the flood comes, people die. The water recedes after 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And, uh, you know, according to Genesis, the earth as we know it and humanity as we know it was destroyed. So it's yet another Old Testament story that is incredibly unpleasant and probably leads to all kinds of questions and potentially confusion of how do we reconcile that picture of God with the picture of God we see in Christ hanging on the cross. You know, I was reading the news the other day. And uh, John Kelly, President Trump's chief of staff, he joked to people that God is punishing him for leaving his job as Secretary of Homeland Security and taking the chief of staff position. And I can make a lot of jokes here, uh, but I will refrain. But it does beg the question, whether it's with the human beings in Genesis and the Noah's Ark story, or with John Kelly, does God punish human beings? Does he do that? To answer this, we're going to have to do like this Google map view of Noah's Ark. We're going to start in real close on Noah's Ark, and then we're going to back away and get a bigger picture view from the crucifix, from the peak of Scripture, this all-encompassing view. So here's some context to the, to the near uh, view of Noah's Ark and the, and the context of the ancient Israelites and understanding God's involvement in the flood. Ancient Israelites viewed the world like a spider web in which everything is organically connected. So this is why throughout the Old Testament, the fate of humans, the fate of the earth, and the fate of animals are all tied together. You'll see this throughout Old Testament stories. When humans suffer, the earth suffers, and animals suffer, and vice versa. That happens. Everything is organically connected. Uh, an example of this is embedded in the story that we just read. So let's take a look at Genesis 6 again. I'm gonna, there's two verses I'm going to put on screen. And I put in all caps the particular word. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I highlighted corrupt, corrupted, and destroy because those are all the same Hebrew word, sahat. 
So how do we go, if I asked you the definition of corrupt and the definition of destroy, we would probably say those are two totally different definitions. So in the English language here, we've got what I would call is a concerning translation uh, to the Hebrew word sahat. The words are capitalized. Uh, I'm not going to get into that necessarily, but what I do want to point out is that the same root word that describes the, it describes the sinful conditions of humans, it describes the effect their sin was having on the earth, and it describes the punishment for this sin. This indicates that all three are organically connected because they all use the same word to describe them. So keep that word organic in mind as we back away. We're going to back away, and then we're going to zoom back in. Um, did God punish? Now we sort of back away. We've got to go to the crucifix. Did God punish Jesus for our sins? Did, God, did Jesus die in order to quench the wrath of God? This is, uh, if you read like Romans 1 through 4, I'd like to do, it would probably take us like a year to get through that accurately. So I can't do that today. Um, but what I, what I will say, this is why I, I tell you to question what I'm saying today and to wrestle with it. Um, in the 11th century, something happened. The theology of redemptive violence entered the church. The theory and interpretation that problems are solved through violence did not exist in the first 10 centuries of the church. And what happened, when that turn happened, the crucifixion began to be viewed, told verbally, and then a few hundred years later, translated and printed in an interpretive manner that is new and different than what the original authors had intended. And it's no coincidence that in the 11th century, uh, five centuries of church-sanctioned violence and murder began, like pretty much nonstop. So prior to the 11th century, Christians believed that Jesus died not to free us from God's wrath, but to free us from Satan's wrath. It's, what his, it's historically known as the Christus Victor Atonement Theory. So in our next series and, and in the future, I'm going to go into more detail about that. Um, so I, I just jumped to a really big conclusion without any scriptural prep. Like we didn't walk through any scripture to get there. So that's why I'm like, hey, wrestle with this because I just skipped over, you know, 10 centuries of church history. Um, but I do want to point out um, the fact that uh, when we see Jesus on the cross, it's not God's wrath that we see. It's God's withdrawal. So a few verses in the New Testament that speak to this. Romans 8.32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he screams out as he's dying, his last words on earth were, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So gave, God gave, God delivered um, Jesus says, why have you abandoned me? In this moment, what Jesus is experiencing is God's withdrawal, which is the total opposite of perfect communion with God, that Trinitarian love. So Jesus had never experienced this, and it, he felt it, and you see him verbally cry out in response to feeling this abandonment. So let me give you, which sound, this sounds like a paradox. Wait a second. God abandoned Jesus but loves him? That's, that doesn't make sense. So let me give you a few examples uh, of the, some of the paradoxes that exist within our faith. So I had this hat, this baseball hat that I loved. Um, I got it when I was in eighth grade, and I wore it pretty much every day 
from eighth grade until my senior year, and I never washed it. This had a, a bit of a reputation with my friends. It was, Ian's giving me like, yeah. He's giving me a nod of approval. It stunk. I mean, it was, it was n- the nastiest hat, but it was like, I called it my lucky hat. I, I had no like, evidence to prove that it was a lucky hat. I just loved wearing it, and it was really comfortable. And honestly, I like getting reactions out of people, so I enjoyed seeing their, their reactions to the inside of my hat when they looked at it. It was nasty. But I love this hat. And then I went on this retreat. My senior year is my last like, in, uh, retreat with my church youth group. And our youth pastor asked each senior to give an object uh, up to completely, you know, we'd never see it again, that, would, that symbolized, um, it, it symbolized love. And that was the thing I loved the most. Like, it was the, the material object that I loved the most was this hat. And so I gave that hat up. And I still remember the shock of people seeing me give it up. And, and deliver my hat. So what I did is I did this. It's not the same exact thing, but I gave my hat up. I delivered it. I abandoned it. And yet I still loved it. So it can happen. So let me give you another, another example. And around eight, eight years from now, Carrie and I are going to drive our oldest son Tyson to whatever Ivy League college he's been accepted into. <laughs> and we're going to be very joyful because he's going to have a full financial ride. It's just going to be fantastic. We're going to drop him off. We're going to help him unload his stuff in the dorm room. We're going to deliver him. We're going to give him up to Yale or to Harvard or to Cornell or wherever it may be. And we're going to, in a sense, abandon him. It's going to be a new season away from mom and dad and away from his family. Does that mean we love him less because we take him there? These are imperfect metaphors. All right, this is going from a hat and dropping a kid off of college to Jesus on the cross, that's, that's a big jump. But what I want us to see is the paradox of God can abandon and God can love at the same time. Christianity is filled with these types of things. So Greg Boyd says, um, this is the wrath that Jesus experienced. It involved no anger or violence on God's part. Um, the Old Testament does not have a word for punishment. It doesn't exist. What we see instead in the Hebrew language is that it refers, is is a verbiage, the different words that that God uses and the writers use, is it refers to the effects of human sin. So for centuries, the Western world has thought of punishment in Scripture as judicial, meaning it's dealt out by God as a consequence. So for example... um, we think of it like think of it as a parent. Like if one of my sons hits his brother, a natural reaction that I've done many times is you earn a chore. Like you're going to take out the trash, you're going to clean that bathroom. The the acts of sin and the consequence are completely unrelated. All right, hitting his brother and taking out the trash, there, there's there's no organic connection there. I'm just trying to find a way to make him know that's wrong. And that's how how we've had a tendency for ten centuries to view sin and punishment and the effects of human sin in scripture that it's judicial punishment that's an an order from high but the bible communicates that sin is organic there's that word again we're coming back around to noah's ark we're zooming back in god doesn't impose punishment on people the destructive consequences of sin are built into the sin itself this is why it says that script in scripture that sin leads to death Not because God brings death down, 
but because the natural, organic effect of sin is death. And as we said earlier, sin, it disrupts more than the individual in Eastern culture. It's a butterfly effect of destruction. All right, it affects the earth, it affects the animals, it affects relationships, it affects every little nook and cranny, and we can't even comprehend how much it affects and how much sin throws the world out of whack. So this, that's why I really struggle with the, the hyper-individualism that we see in our culture where essentially people are like, hey, it's your life, it's none of my business, do what you want. That's not true. It's communal. It's organic. Everything that you do and say impacts the world in some way, shape, or form. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. So I really resist it when people want to like individualize or, or box in their life because they don't understand the ramifications of that. We are all tied together. Our lives and our decisions, they're communal and they're organic. And with Noah's Ark, God does the same thing that he did with Jesus on the cross. He abandons humanity to their sin. He withdraws. And when God abandons, all creation gets thrown out of whack. Hence, the flood. Because God is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who separated land and water. And when he, when he withdraws his presence, who knows what the consequences are going to look like. And humanity did not want his presence anymore. All right? When he withdraws his presence, who knows what's going to happen to the earth. God didn't punish humanity. Humanity didn't want him anymore. The punishment was organic. It was not judicial. And it's important to note regarding the nature of God, because you might resist that. Jesus did not impose himself on anyone. When people wanted him to go away, he left. When people didn't want to follow him anymore, he grieved and he let them go. God is not coercive. God is not manipulative. God is non-controlling. He's going to let you go and do what you want. So if you want to be left to your sin, God will let us do that. He's never, he, he will abandon us to that. So he's not going to participate in your sin, but we talked about this last week. And this, again, it's, 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 uh, it's hard to communicate and hard to understand. He abandons, but he's still near. He is still waiting for us to turn back to him. And there's never a moment that we're too far away. Like, it, it, that doesn't happen. He's right there with us waiting for that rock bottom to occur. So if you've ever known someone, a, another metaphor to think about, and it's imperfect, but think about, and maybe you've had someone like this in your life who's addicted to drugs, and you've tried and tried and tried to rescue them and to heal them and to get them help, and you see them just continuing in their path. At some point, you can't have a codependent relationship. You have to release them. You can't live other people's lives for them. And that's the type of God or type of love God has for us. He's not abandoning us because he's punishing us or because he's wrathful. He's just honoring our request, but he's wait, he's right there waiting for the turning point. I've experienced this. I've experienced divine abandonment um, where God gave me over to my sin, specifically idolatry because idolatry is the root of all sin. Uh, it was not pleasant. It was very slow, but at my lowest. Uh, at my at the my death to this idol, he met me there, and there's it's a long story, but I've I've experienced that. Don't hear this though. I am not trying to explain human suffering in the world. I, I can't do that. I, it's more nuanced than that. Um, just because 
someone's suffering, it does not mean that God has abandoned them. What I'm talking about is the Old Testament. I'm talking about how, we, how do we view Noah's Ark? Because now, yeah, maybe someone is experiencing difficulty because of abandonment. But I'm not saying that's 100% true every time. So don't hear that. I'm simply trying to make sense of Old Testament story through the lens of, of the cross. So if, you're, if you are experiencing a lowness that you've never felt before, you might, I'm saying might, be experiencing divine abandonment. It's part of the Christian journey. But remember, from death comes life. That's part of our theology. Christ will meet you there. It may take months for this death to occur. It may take years, but he will be there to restore you and to heal you and to raise you and to bring you up. And here's why all this matters. Um, God is not a violent God. That's the conclusion. You can disagree with that, and we can still be Christians together. But here's why I think that's important. Our understanding of this is critical to me because it's a verifiable scientific and historical fact that violence begets violence. And I'm not just talking about war. I'm talking about culture war. I'm talking about verbal violence. Our participation in these perpetuates sin, throws all of creation out of whack, not just our individual lives. It's ripple effects. It's waves. All forms of violence tempt me because it's tempting to participate in all of them, but they also grieve me because I know based on what I see in Scripture and through the cruciform lens that everything is organically connected, that it's all thrown out of whack. So, we have to resist the temptation to participate in physical forms of violence, in culture war, in verbal violence, because this is not the way of God. And for 10 centuries, the church has participated in violence. And it's, it is one of the greatest sins that the church has ever done, is participate in that. And it, because it's not the nature of Christ. And these sins are toxic to all of creation. Um, so... Why it matters for us, and I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me, that I've, I, I've been, uh, I'm constantly baited by Christians, of all people, to participate in culture war and in verbal violence. And, and it's, t- oh my gosh, is it tempting? Oh, when someone leaves a comment on my Facebook feed that is just filled with ignorance, do you know how hard it is for me to resist that and to just attack and, and just use, you know, arrogance or intellect or whatever it may be and just beat them over the head with it that's really tempting to do but it's not holy it's sinful and it'll perpetuate the cycle but it's astounding that i see so many christians participating in verbal violence or in culture war violence and it's just divisive and hurtful and my hope is that we will die to that that we will rise from that that we will allow christ to peel back layers and layers of generational sin in the church so that we can feel healing and participate, not in violence, but in love. That's what we have. That's the kind of hope we have with the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, what I just said was not um, perfect. It's flawed because I'm not you.